You're listening to the Inventure Life Science Innovation Podcast, where we showcase startup founders and innovators. This is your host, Alondra, and today we have Jordan Miller, professor, entrepreneur, and co-founder of Polymetric, a company that's working on the next generation of biomaterials for 3D printing of organs. He's a world-class investigator, and his research on vascularization was the cover of the Science Magazine in 2019. In this episode, he talks about the struggles about being an academic entrepreneur and how he learned how to find the right type of investors for his company. Enjoy. How's it going? Thank you so much. Good. Thank you so much for taking this time after, you know, the many trials to make this happen. But I, I, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Okay, true. Uh, My pleasure. No worries. So thank you so much. And then venture were a community um, that fosters entrepreneurship. So we were really interested. I was really interested in knowing the story behind Volumetric and how you manage to do okay. both the academic world and also the entrepreneurial work. So one one thing I was um, very curious to know is in what moment did you think or in what moment did you say this is or science is what I want to do, or specifically, you know, working in biomaterials. When do you realize that? Um, so this, this takes me way back. This is actually like, well, I, I knew I was very curious about biology in high school. And I actually did biology as my major as an undergrad. Um, everything we were studying in biology at MIT was based on what was happening inside of one cell. And it was fascinating. Meanwhile, uh, there's all these problems in healthcare. There's people dying every day. And I went to this professor and he was talking about work that probably was really fascinated. And I, after, the, after the, um, the presentation, I went up to him and asked if I could join his lab. So I uh, went to a lab meeting and uh, was very interested and intrigued at two parts of this. One is that there are materials that could be made could be processed biomaterials or could be made from scratch in the lab that could interface with the human body. And two, that we actually don't have to know all of the mechanisms of action to make an impact. And, you know, we still are studying 60 years on after the first organ transplant, how and why it works and how and when it fails, still learning new mechanisms of action there. But think of all the people that have had transplants that have been helped. So I think we don't want to wait until all the biology is known to be able to make progress and biomaterials field seemed the best for me. So I went on to do my uh, PhD at Rice in biomaterials uh, focused um, in our department of bioengineering. How is it then that, is that the story behind you starting your own lab at Rice, or is that the story that you know that goes for a little bit further to volumetric, or are they both combined? Uh, they're definitely related. Yeah. So I think being in uh, during my PhD, it was very clear to me that the cells are doing a lot of very important things in regenerative medicine, and we really want to make a scaffold that the cells can operate in our field has been stuck at this initial limitation of the first stage of physiology is survival. We cannot make tissues that have hundreds of millions or billions of cells in one scaffold. 
but that that's what our organs are. And so if we can't keep cells, that many cells alive in one scaffold in vitro, we're not gonna be able to make organs. And so it seemed to me during my PhD that there was a need for more technology and the biomaterials side such that we could architect the scaffolds that could hold cells. And that led to a number of projects in biomaterial synthesis and 3D printing that's taken me all the way through my postdoc and through my lab at Rice to where we now have, I think, the right technology to take organ engineering to the level where it can finally be used in a therapeutic sense in the clinic. And that's our company, Volumetric. What was the specific need that you were trying to feel with Volumetric? Uh, it's really about the, um, the, it's about how we're gonna be able to make organs that are the size and complexity of our human organs. So the name volumetric is named after our volumetric organs. They historically have been called the solid organs, like the liver is one of the solid organs, but it's not actually solid. Almost half of it is liquid. We have all these blood vessel networks, you have lymphatics, you have the bile duct system. There's all of these different fluid networks that have to be built. And so we don't call them solid organs, we call them the volumetric organs and our company exists to make those organs starting with the liver. So then I, I guess switching gears a little bit, but I know that after you established your company, you went to Silicon Valley to try to get investors. How's that process? Um, yeah, that was awesome. So we applied to uh, Y Combinator. Well, I, it, it happened in two stages. The first stage is back in 2018, uh, Bergar and I, he's a co-founder, um, we applied for a grant to do the NSF I-Corps program. It's I-CORPS, and it helps you identify what are the technical and commercial milestones that your technology might be able to hit to get to market. And we used that funding, so you get $50,000 grant to the university for us to study this problem, and we had a bunch of tissues that had been designed that were leading up to our publication of the technique. And we were interviewing lots of people around the country to figure out what would be the commercial aspects. Interestingly, they don't allow you to talk to academics in, uh, in that grant process <laughs> because you know, academics were always constrained for budget, were slow to make decisions. The, uh, yeah, th they're small contracts. So this has really been uh, pretty interesting. We realized it wasn't the right time to launch the company, but then later we did the national I-Corps program and we did see that the market was there. So we applied to Y Combinator because it's an accelerator program that helps you fundraise. And unfortunately, you know, the, the mindset, I guess the things that Silicon Valley gets made fun of for <laughs> such as, <laughs> being two big idea, blue sky, pie in the sky ideas. Okay, we're going to live on Mars, you know, eating clean meat to with unicorn. our bioprinters making organ. Right. Like everybody's going to be a unicorn and uh, we're already mentally living in that future that it's going to take decades to make. 
so the same thing that makes that an area that's, uh, you know, they're, they're too optimistic in the sense of what they fund in Houston has been that a lot of the people that we talk to are, um, for our technology, too pessimistic. This is a platform technology. It's very hard to value how much a platform technology is worth. And if you pick the right platform to start the company on, if we have a generic kind of high resolution 3D printing, maybe we should make tennis shoes, right? That's what Carbon did. And they are making parts for Ford Motor Company and they're making all kinds of plastic parts. They, they could go make organ scaffolds next, right? Maybe we should have become a billion dollar 3D printing of plastic company first. That's interesting. Was it there a lot of convincing that you and your co-founder Bagrad had to do in order to prove or in order to make the funders understand that, hey, there's, there is a market for this, you know, it's, and, it's, and it's not just for tennis shoes. Yeah, it was exactly complimentary. So we would talk in Houston about going to make organs. They'd say, well, can you just make tissue chips, focus on the tissue chip story. So we would, we would tell them the tissue chip story you know, organ on chip, and they would still say no. So then we got an interview of Y Combinator and we tell the tissue chip story and they're like, okay, but what about organs? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, thank you, right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, then my kind of people here, let's talk about organs. What is it going to take? How much money? You know, we have to map out, okay, here's the next $50 million and we're going to do a, a $2 million round this year. Let's see if we can do that. So uh, it was great. And actually Rice was very supportive. Uh, so the Dean, Dean uh, Reggie DeRoche, he was Dean of Engineering at the time. And I came to him because we had gotten into Y Combinator. Rice is a shareholder in Volumetric because Volumetric has licensed the technology out of the university. And I had to teach last spring, right? The biomaterials oh, yeah. class actually that you took. Yeah, yeah, that's why we didn't have the last class year. last year. It's, it's actually because we got into Y Combinator, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> so what we worked out was that I would do deferred teaching. So I wasn't getting like a bonus uh, sabbatical, which is not fair to the other faculty. But uh, instead, I would just get to defer my teaching. And then we had to do double stack classes this semester. But it allowed us to go to California and go through the program and we met a huge amount of investors and we learned a lot i did over 150 pitches last year oh wow <laughs> so that's one that's a testament to how interesting people are in this how interested people are in this area and two it's probably a testament to how new i am at fundraising <laughs> 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 that it took that many to get but I think I consider it like a mini MBA having done through Y Combinator, talked to all these advisors, investors, and set up all these pieces of the company. So it's, it's kind of on-job training, which doesn't bring a lot of confidence to the investors. But at the same time, we're heavily educated and we basically, you know, all of us in our field, we know how to learn. And so a lot of the investors that we did get is like, look, you guys are good scientists. We'll be able to teach you the business stuff. That's easy and boring. We want you guys to do this because you only you can solve these hard problems. Right. Well, and they that, also talk about. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Out of 
all those, you know, 150 pitches that you did, what was the hardest thing? What was the hardest thing of trying to convince all those people? Oh, it's basically uh, 150 first dates, <laughs> right? <laughs> because you're trying to decide in the first meeting, how much are you going to invest in each other, either time or money or whatever, right? Um, and it's hard to get the first batch of no's that is not a good fit. And it's, it's sort of like grant reviews in that way that what they say is believe the no, but don't believe the why. So they say, oh, you know, we, we don't want to invest in you guys because the market's not ready. When sure, they, we believe they don't want to invest in us, but maybe it's because they're terrified of academic entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not going to say that. So it's hard to read between the lines and make progress. And I think I had initially thought of investors as one kind of monolithic block of mentality. And that's how they had been described to me a lot. And uh, if you see the show Silicon Valley, there's a lot of quite diverse mindsets among investors and seeing what that kind of cross-section was like, having gone through Y Combinator and building out the network was really interesting. For example, some investors loved it that Volumetric has been selling things. There's a real business there. There's products going out the door. People are buying them. They're using them in their labs. Other investors hated the idea that Volumetric has revenue. Because why in their that? mind, say again? Why, why, why is that? It's totally crazy, right? Um, how, why would you be mad at us making money? So what they would say is these are like the hyper risky investors that I think about. If you think about how Uber became what it is and they're still, I'm not sure if they've turned a profit yet, right? Their goal was to expand as fast as humanly possible. Profits be damned. And we'll just keep spending investor money to penetrate all of the markets, get everybody driving, give them very inexpensive rides, underpay all the drivers, and we'll just keep expanding and growing. And then eventually we'll monetize the network. So in that sense, they're like, you could be growing so much faster if all you did was R&D to get to organs. However, <laughs> we are extremely cognizant that that is what has caused some of the last 30 to 40 years of failures of companies that want to make organs. We are not the first company that's come along to say, hey, we think our technology is going to make organ replacements for people. And almost all of them uniformly have failed because the R&D, as we talked about in the beginning, the research is not even clear all of the outcomes. We know that the liver has over 500 functions. We know that there are probably hundreds more that we don't know about yet, right? So how can we presume that just the next 5 million of R&D is definitely going to get to organs? We can't. Instead, you have to say more pragmatically, we need to have the next tranche of money for R&D. Meanwhile, we can get part of that from sales and the sales are going to make us better as a company long-term. Yeah. It's not like instantiate. Make people, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, any set of amount right now, you know, it's going to make 3D printer organs, you know, real thing. It actually, it's going to take like many, many more years. 
And in the meantime, you know, if you can get some revenue, why not? Right. We even we even would have two investors from the same firm that would openly disagree on the call with us, but whether we should do revenue or not. So it turns out, you know, the the some of the early rejections of like you shouldn't be going for sales, those are just not the right investors for us. It's fine their their portfolio, they have their own investment thesis. And their thesis is I don't want people to waste time getting revenue. There is somewhat of an of a self-incentive to companies not getting revenue because then if you don't hit your technical milestone, which is outside your control, we're learning new science as we go, right? If you don't hit your technical milestone, you got to raise another round and you get more diluted because you got to go back to them, your sugar daddy, sugar mama, right? To get, <laughs> get more money again. So we took the revenue path and it's been working pretty well. Um, and looking to the next set of how we make these organ scaffolds to get them into animals. You said something very interesting that you said that not everyone is the right investor for you. How, what's what's the balance between taking feedback from investors, but also knowing or also being firm or being uh, truthful to your company? I think we have to live. Yeah, we certainly have to live by our principles here because if we don't have we're very clear with our investors that. Like if, so they'll always ask, you know, we're, we're not trying to sell the company, but they'll always ask, what if you sold the company, what would that look like? And it's like, look, we're, we're not looking to sell the company. We believe in this technology so strongly that anyone who approaches us to buy the company better understand how we're getting to organs with this tech or be amenable to us explaining and making that happen. Because the last thing that we want is to get acquired and then have the technology shelved for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. so, so we very much are upfront about that. And we explain, we want to get to organs. We believe we're going to get there. This is our path. And that is definitely not for everyone. But what would be worse is if we get investors that don't have an appetite for the long view. Mm -hmm. They want to 2x their money in, in five years. And they're hoping that we'll have some kind of sales event that that happens. And then they could end up pressuring the company to take a faster off-ramp on the path to success than what is actually possible. So, so you know, people change their mind too. You don't, you don't know, right. you're not guaranteeing that they're in it for forever, but yeah, we, all, we do need to return liquidity to the investors, mm -hmm. but this is a decidedly hard task that we're, we've laid out for the future. So, so you're saying that right now, Olymetric needs to be fed or it's, it's being fed by both, you know, the revenue, but also the R&D portion. Yeah. Is, is that something that you combined with your lab as well for the R&D portion? You know, um, our lab at Rice, we're still doing very fundamental understanding of how to print better, how to get better cellularized structures and better tissue function. And that will continue in an academic way. With the, with the main motivators there of contribution to knowledge. Mm -hmm. Obviously patenting things as, as they come up. Uh, those patents are available for companies like Volumetric to license out. But and it's something that, that you keep separate. That's right, yeah. Yeah, no one in the lab has any affiliation with Volumetric <laughs> and we keep it that way on purpose. Why do you think 
investors are hesitant to work with uh, academic entrepreneurs? Oh, yeah. I mean, because what I mean, to be an academic, you don't need to know how to balance a checkbook, actually. Right. So um, how are you going to trust to someone that you don't even know if they're their functional capacity as a business person? Right. Um, so I think it's just it's just a big risk on that side. Now, it's also there's this push pull for investors about something that they feel is lower risk when at the same time it's called venture capital. So there's there's quite a dichotomy there. You're looking for the sweet spot where they feel like it's risky enough that it could be big in a payoff, but it's been de-risked enough that they feel that it's a safe bet for their money. And safe is a relatively defined term by each individual investor at each firm. How do you manage your time of having both, um, you know, volumetric your company and also, you know, a lab at Rise? Yeah, it's uh, maybe I don't. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I think the the people that I work directly with, um, everyone in my lab, everyone in our department, everyone at the company, they have my direct number. So if there's something very urgent or same day or something, I'm available. And then there's sort of a hierarchy of how I kind of address incoming versus the things I know I need that I have scheduled versus uh, you have to put blocks of time for thinking on your calendar. Because if you just do, then you might go off on a tangent and not have realized it, right? Yeah, so I saw, I've seen a bunch of stuff about this. Uh, one that I, I like to, I don't actually, I don't actually do this, but I like to think of it that way. Um, they'll pick some fictitious name like uh, Jim and they'll schedule two hours or three hours on their calendar for meeting with Jim, <laughs> but it's actually <laughs> like their personal writing time. <laughs> but then it's like, Hey, can you have a meeting tomorrow? No, no, I have a meeting with Jim. Then uh, we can talk after that <laughs> because what happens is if you make it a, a float time that it can be pushed aside then it will get pushed aside and tasks and email always take up the amount of space and time that you give them. So I'm not, I'm actually really bad on email, which is tough, but uh, I feel like we're still making excellent progress in many areas. And I, I just need some better filtering to process things better. What are the current challenges that you see that maybe volumetric will face in the next year or in the next years? I think this is a really exciting time for this field. I have never felt that we had a technology in hand that will be able to get to organs in the next, you know, couple of years, except I do now. <laughs> so <laughs> we're looking at making scaffolds with, um, trillions of points in space, something that hasn't been done before. And we believe will get us to the resolution and scale that will be required to make hundreds of billions of cells survive in an organ. So 
what is really exciting about this is not whether or not it will work, but the fact that we can ask the question and answer it within the next year. <laughs> uh, if we find it's not high enough resolution, we could go higher resolution and then test that next year. And we will get the data out to suggest whether we're on the right path or not. So I'm very excited with the scale up of the, you know, we talk about that in class, right? Scale, uh, will this scale or won't it? And I think where we have the academic pursuit at Rice, the company exists to ask the question, will we scale and how? Because we're gonna have to be able to make a thousand livers a year to be functionally producing just the beginning of this market. But are, are so you saying nobody, that nobody has one even? But are you saying that the that maybe one of your or one of your current um, goals is to either improve the resolution or is there a resolution that you already know at which you can you know successfully perform like complete vascularization of organs, but you haven't reached it yet, or you don't know the resolution. Or, or you don't know if you need more resolution in order to achieve that. Is it something that you already know? Yeah, I think, well, I, I, think, I think that we do, and it's still an open question. So I could definitely be wrong, but here's why I think I'm right. So our capillaries are five microns in diameter, but the capillaries are smaller than the cells that make them. An, a single endothelial cell is elongated in, into a hollow tube to make a capillary. And if you culture endothelial cells and you trypsinize them, get them off of their membrane, they're gonna be 10 to 15 microns in size. You can't fit that in a five micron hole without destroying the cells. So we don't think printing capillaries is the solution. Even if we could print capillaries, which there are techniques some of which I developed in my PhD that could print capillaries. But even if you could put cells in those structures, they're gonna remodel the capillary bed just based on local needs of nutrient transport. So we just went up one order of magnitude. We just said, could we make networks of 50 micron vessels and 50 micron vessels, five zero, those can be endothelialized just by injection. And we are beginning to see a lot of very interesting biology come out there. So this is, um, so Dan Sazer in my group at Rice is finishing his PhD and asking this question, you know, how small of a resolution can we go get down to 50 micron endothelialize the vessels? And is that enough to sustain organoids and maybe organ scaffolds? So I think we're gonna see a lot there, a lot of biology to be learned and so I don't think we're going to need higher than about 10 micron resolution of the printer. So with a 10 micron resolution, you can make 50 micron vessels. And if we just have enough of those 10 micron points, we might have an organ. Would you say that, you know, just as your lab, you know, works in vascularization along with other labs, um, that work in tissue engineering, would you say that, you know, the more papers and more um, articles that we see coming up, do you think that's going to help to increase the commercialization from volumetric? 
Oh, uh, yeah, I think, and this is also where some of the investors differ. If they'll say, you know, why are you producing printers for the academic market? But one is we're feeding the next generation of ideas, right? Because someone that does their PhD using a Luminex bioprinter that we sell together with Cellink, that's on the job training. They're going to be uh, quite a good asset for either company. And some of what they did in their PhD may lead to patents that will become critical or crucial in future organ therapies. So not only is there revenue to be had there, but there is there is intellectual potential intellectual revenue. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Intellectual revenue, intellectual infrastructure that we're building indirectly that is just good for the field. I mean, I think it's also quite, um, just for selfish reasons, it's, it's quite amazing to see the work replicated on all these printers that are out there in the wild now. And it always gets, you know, something we always talk about with open source and open science and science is supposed to be open. Open science should be redundant, right? But there's so many papers that are not reproducible. So not only did we have our work published in science, but we have our printers out there and everybody is replicating our work. And that is extremely gratifying because it means we not only understood and observed something, but we deeply got to the mechanism and we're able to train other people how to do it. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. You know, I think a lot of people say that, you know, it's hard to make the proof of concept, but sometimes it's actually harder to to replicate that result or to commercialize it and, and make it into a thousand thousand projects or products. Yeah, and there was that study by the Arthur Foundation a couple of years ago called the reproducibility problem or reproducibility experiment. And they tried to reproduce like the top 10 cancer papers from the last decade. And many of them could not be reproduced. And that's very scary because if scientific discourse is based on these few papers and there's not, there's barely enough money to get the single paper done, let alone like who wants to fund 15 labs to reproduce that data. Nobody does, which is in many ways a travesty <laughs> because we need to be sure of what we observed, right? And that's how you get, you let through some of these more controversial papers that end up, it takes a couple of years, but people figure out that it's not actually true. So like there was that paper about STAP, the, it's STAP a couple of years ago where it was claimed that just taking somatic, regular adult, terminally differentiated somatic cells, putting them in acid for a little bit of time, shocks them into becoming stem cells. That is not true, actually. But I think it was a, a cell or a nature paper um, and ended up having to get retracted and people lost their careers and, and such. Oh, wow. So having a way, yeah, having a way to be able to reproduce. And it's, it's been very gratifying to see the open science movement formalize, bring openness back to science, get people's papers where the public that pays for the work can see the, can see the work, can see the outcome, and that the data that was part of the publication also available. And I think this is you know, a problem that I see in many, many fields. I personally am in neuroscience and I see the exact same problem 
all these you know flashy papers with excellent um, technology that could be developed, but in that could there's you know a thousand questions of whether we can reproduce this or whether we can take this to an actual company. Yeah, it's it's really tricky. It's uh, I think the the motivation for us is not you know a lot of people are like oh you start a company to make money that's not why. The quote that I like is from Buddy Ratner. He gave a talk about commercialization at a BMES like 10 or 15 years ago that I still hold dear where his quote was that, uh, you know, we're always talking about translational research. We want to do translational research. Translation is commercialization. And there's no way for quote unquote, the market or the clinic to use this technology unless there's a company that has been instantiated around the technology to bring it to the clinic. The clinic is not just gonna pull it in. You gotta have a company functioning. So, and that um, having, I guess actually all three of my previous major advisors from undergrad, Jan Yanas, from my PhD, Jennifer West, and uh, from my postdoc, Chris Chen, all having their own companies, I think I always got exposed to that. And it was very good to see that you can have a, a company to take the technology forward. Meanwhile, you still need to keep the academic research progressing to get to the foundations of the next stage. What would you say is gonna be the next stage for Bolymetric? Is it increasing the production? Um, I think there's some really interesting technologies that Volumetric is developing that I think will have a really big impact on capabilities for organ scaffolds. So I'm very excited to see where that goes and what can we do in terms of making and even opening up this new design space. So if we're gonna have a trillion points in space, what kind of file format can we store the design for a trillion points that's in an uncompressed state, that's a terabyte for what we're trying to do. So, okay, we can move a terabyte around, but <clears throat> what kind of program can open a terabyte data file and visualize what's in there? So a bunch of our advisors and collaborators have been standardizing around the VDB file format, which is a sparse lossless uh, geometrical based file format that does have per voxel data that is probably how we're going to help standardize on this to get to trillions of points in space. So I think we're, we're trying to unite the design side with the printing side. Every time the printer gets better, the design space, the canvas is larger that we can paint inside of to make the organ structure. And I believe it's somewhere between the one, 1 trillion to 200 trillion points in space should be enough to make an organ. With the enough resolution that we were mentioning previously. Yeah. So with, you know, 10 micron resolution, something like that. Is there any organ that you're prioritizing? Yeah. Volumetric is focusing on the liver. And I think there's a related project there with the pancreas given. Um, so Omid and I, Omid Vesa, in our department, we have a grant together from JDRF, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, 
where we're building these engineered tissues, loading them up with islets and implanting them. So that's led to some other patent filings that I think would be very interesting from a commercialization standpoint. We need a vascular pocket that we can load up with parenchymal cells, either liver hepatocytes or pancreatic islets, and they need to be in close proximity to the blood. And we'll but, see, we'll measure in. So is a liver the organ that's most feasible to grow in the future right now? Or is it the organ that is uh, the one most requested in the list of transplants? I think we look at it as we're not trying to go for the easiest. The easiest is probably cartilage where I'm sorry, apologies to the people working in the cartilage area, but I mean, structurally, okay. Why do I, I can say that uh, coherently as from a structural basis, cartilage does not have any vasculature. So people have shown, so actually Kyriakos Athanasio who, um, was previously our, one of our department chairs at Rice Bywe. He had a lot of very interesting work showing that you could just centrifuge cartilage cells down into a pellet and they would form something that looked and behaved like native cartilage. Now, if you spin down a pellet of liver cells, they will die very quickly in tens of minutes. So we have a complexity there. There are other vascular structures that we could do, things like skin that are relatively simple, but we have already solutions for things like skin. We were talking about cow skin in the beginning, right? Processing that into dermal scalp. Right. So we already have, so if someone has a burn, they, they have treatment options. If you have a diseased liver, in many cases, the only option is either get a transplant or die. And so we see the opportunity of if the liver has the ability and actually the, has the need for the type of architecture that we can make. And the liver cells have the best innate regenerative capacity out of any of our organ cells. So you can cut away the liver, two thirds of the liver, and it'll grow back again. That is still quite amazing and uh, suggests to me that if we can at least make a small liver, maybe the rest of it will take over and can fill up some of the empty space that's in there. So I think for us, the, the liver and the, the pancreas also has uh, quite a lot of need. In many cases, the liver cells and the pancreatic islets have a somewhat of a simpler outcome than what you need to get the lungs or the kidneys. The kidneys, there are very specific salt gradients and cell types that have to be in specific regions to get exactly the function. And in the liver, if you take hepatocytes, you inject them in the spleen, they tend to function okay. And they can actually produce and secrete the right things into the bloodstream. You just can't fill up the whole spleen with enough liver cells to make a whole liver. So we know that the liver cells are quite amenable to different environmental situations in even different places inside the body. So the thought is if we can make a vascularized scaffold that could hold them, that would keep them close enough to the blood stream that they could get the nutrients they need, they could produce bile, it would get drained through ducts and empty out correctly. Then maybe that would get to whole organ function. What's the size that you would say 
you might need to reach hypothetically, you know, that in order for a liver to be big enough so it can, you know, finish the expansion or the rep- or the reproduction by itself. So the, the adult human liver has 360 billion hepatocytes. We certainly need at least a billion hepatocytes, um, but probably more would be better if we could. So generally we're looking at one to 10 billion hepatocytes as a first target of what a therapeutic could be. And maybe it doesn't restore entire liver function, but if at least it begins to function, can produce and help, and it could be a bridge to transplant to allow people to survive long enough that a transplant becomes available. And then the best case, maybe it would just actually regrow into one of proper size and the patient would no longer need to be on the organ transplant wait list. One last question. What advice would you give to specifically academic entrepreneurs that will definitely face the same challenges that you did? Oh, I think, um, yeah, you can feel intimidated if you're an academic trying to enter and start a company, but there's never been a better time to start a company than now. Um, It's quite easy to do from a paperwork standpoint. There are lots of ways for startup companies to get funding right now. And there is no networking that you need to do to apply to Y Combinator. There's just a web form to fill out. Um, They famously say you're, you're never too early to apply there. So I think even if you haven't incorporated as a company, you can still apply to Y Combinator. It's one of the questions, have you incorporated yet? <laughs> and you can say no, and you can still get in, they'll help you incorporate. So I think having an idea of what you wanna do, why you wanna do it, finding your purpose. If your purpose is academic, that's great. If your purpose is commercialization of technology that you invented, that's also great. And that's kind of where we've been for the last couple of years has been very exciting. So there's just a lot of resources now, even even if uh, you don't apply to get to an accelerator program, there are very good training videos just on YouTube. So getting going back to Y Combinator, they publish a lot of their summer schools and investor, how to be an investor workshops on their YouTube channel, just free and public. So you can get 80% of the YC experience just by watching their YouTube. And I mean, that last 20% is quite important, but um, just the, a lot of, the, yeah, a lot of that, how, where, who are the, you know, where, what are all the moving pieces in a business? What are investors even looking for? Why do people invest in startup companies? Understanding the, the mindset of the investor, it's not just these random people with money, they have a real, specific thing they're looking for and they have their investment thesis and and there's a lot of thinking there that will help in your kind of progression or fundraising to understand about it awesome well thank you so much jordan for taking the time i really appreciate it okay have a good rest of your weekend